Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns, your stopping point for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. We've met here at this curious nexus point, and I hope you're prepared to explore the strange, the unusual, the offbeat, the bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, and all the places in between. I'm your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Well, I'm sitting here with Richard Smoley for tonight's episode, and Richard Smoley, as you probably know, is kind of known for his expertise in mystical religious traditions. This includes the Kabbalah, which is a mystic form of Judaism, and Gnosticism, which is a mystic form of Christianity. Now, tonight we're not going to talk about those things necessarily head-on. We're going to talk about them from a tertiary standpoint. He's just written a book called Supernatural. Supernatural is a collection of essays written by Richard about his personal experiences with the supernatural and the fringes of the paranormal. So, um, Richard, let's, let's start out by talking about your credentials and you know, how, how are you educated, sir? Well, I, uh, my degrees are uh, uh, in classics and philosophy from uh, Harvard and Oxford, so it's a fairly conventional uh, education from that point of view. Uh, I've been interested in spirituality, uh, you know, particularly alternative spirituality, for a long time. Um, my uh, father was interested in it when uh, I was young and had books on the subject lying around, so I read some of them. Uh, I really became mostly uh, interested in it in a serious way uh, in the late 70s when I was at Oxford uh, studying classics. and. Uh, I came across a small group that was studying uh, Kabbalah, which mm. is a Jewish form of mysticism, although a lot of people who study it are not Jewish, uh, including me. Mm. Um, and I was with that group for uh, two years, uh, which was the uh, time I was at Oxford. And after that, I went to uh, the San Francisco Bay Area and started uh, exploring different types of spirituality, including A Course in Miracles, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, the teachings of uh, G.I. Gurdjieff, who was a spiritual teacher. Uh, at about the time when I was 30, uh, believe it or not, I, in those days I was an editor for a farm magazine, which is another story. No kidding, really? Uh, and um, Which was interesting and educational, but at some point I realized, you know, this agricultural journal is just not going to be my life's work. How did you fall into that? I mean, were you into agriculture? Let's take a little quick little spin down this little path. I answered an ad in the paper <laughs> for an editorial assistant. <laughs> it was a quick walk. <laughs> it was a quick walk. I answered an ad in a paper. I took the editing test. And I, I stayed there for like six and a half years, and I learned a lot about California agriculture, which is fascinating subject in its own right sure. but there was a point at which I decided you know this really wasn't going to be my life uh, or my specialty so I thought well what am I interested in well I'm interested in spirituality so let me maybe send my resume to some of these spiritual magazines that were out there and um, this was in 1986 and you know there were more magazines then and they were um, a little bit more interesting than they are now. The, mm. the magazines in, in this field have either died, or they've got they've gone so so much that they're you know basically women's lifestyle magazines. <laughs> right, you know, right. You know, uh, you know, yoga for your butt and all that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> That's um, true. Uh, and, and so, but anyway, uh, one uh, 
publication I got involved with was Gnosis, which was a journal of the Western inner traditions. I started writing for that and ended up uh, working as editor for about eight years. Hmm. Uh, and uh, that in 99, I, I moved back to the East Coast and uh, I've written several books since then, um, of which Supernatural is the latest. So, um, I mean, you are really living proof that a philosophy major can become employed. <laughs> right. that's, that's good not, news for not, yeah not necessarily doing philosophy and at least in a conventional <laughs> sense but um. true um, so this latest book Supernatural it's a compilation of essays you've written mm -hmm. about various topics right I and mean, you kind of run the gamut the thing that's great about it is that um, everything kind of connects like whoever organized it I'm sure you can take full credit for this I put it together in a great way where you kind of, it all kind of ties together. You know, mm -hmm. one essay kind of talks about things that mm -hmm. go, you go into detail in another essay and mm -hmm. it kind of wraps itself up. It's a great book. I mean, Thank it's you. a great little book. Um, so in it, I don't want to out you, but mm -hmm. did you, have you experienced everything in this book? I mean, is everything factual? Everything I've, uh, well, let's put it this way. Everything I've said happened to me, uh, you know, has happened to me. Okay. So, uh, you know, there's no fiction in it, I, uh, in that sense. I, um, um, you know, I actually had uh, uh, the first essay in the book is, a, is called An Encounter with an Ancient, the Ancient mm -hmm. Wisdom, which is a little bit about my introduction to the Kabbalah in uh, England in uh, the 70s. And, you know, that's all true. Um, there's, in fact, nothing particularly implausible about it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing, you know, it's not like... Uh, you know, some master uh, materialized in my bedroom with a turban or something like that. Right. I mean, he materialized in a bar in England. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. I mean, that's the way the story goes. Right? Well, uh, yeah, we, we did stop at a, a pub on the way to go and meet this Kabbalist. And I, I had uh, three Guinness Insiders, which kind of left me a little groggy. <laughs> Guinness Insiders. So tell me a little bit about this guy, if you don't, you know, I don't want you to ruin the chapter, but, you know, it's kind of an interesting story. He, but was, he was an interesting guy. He, uh, Glenn uh, Davies was his name, and he was this, uh, he was kind of a Welsh wizard. Uh, and he had his kind of peculiarities. And when you say that, you mean like a real wizard? You mean like Gandalf, kind of quirky wizard kind of a guy? You know, it's weird. Uh, I, um, awesome. The first time I uh, saw The Empire Strikes Back, I thought, <laughs> and I knew this couldn't be the case, right. but, but I thought Yoda was kind of like a, a kind of a very cruel but funny parody of Glenn. <laughs> That's amazing. Was he short? I was kind of short. Was he? <laughs> uh, and, um, Head like a football? <laughs> not quite, not quite. But um, he, was, and he knew a great deal about the Kabbalah. And, uh, you know, he had a. Uh, he basically stayed in his kitchen a lot and smoked roll up cigarettes. And mm. you'd go to see him every now and then, and he would talk. And he did. He did give workshops and uh, oh, courses did. as well. And uh, I did that. He, he was one of the people who had started the Oxford Kabbalah group, uh, oh, okay. which uh, fell apart soon after I left. I, I was told that uh, it had sort of degenerated into a sex party. Unfortunately, I wasn't, I, wasn't, do, I wasn't there for for the fun. <laughs> but um, uh, you left just before I that. Left, I left, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but you know, this was part of. The Kabbalah, in this sense, is part of a Western magical tradition that, you know, this has been, as I said, studied and practiced uh, by uh, non-Jews for like 500 years that we know about. Mm -hmm. So it's a different, in a way, kind of line 
of Kabbalistic uh, thought. The Kabbalah, by the way, is uh, it's a mystical teaching. It means reception or tradition, uh, and it is rooted in Judaism. Again, it had, but it has a lot of uh, uh, cross influences with other uh, traditions. Um, some people say uh, that uh, it really arose out of Gnostic and Neoplatonic influences on Judaism in the early years of the uh, centuries of the Christian era. It seems like there's a, a mystic version of almost every major religion. There is. I mean, so do you think that's, that is because uh, to make it more institutionalized, they kind of had to shave off the harder to believe for the masses kind of aspects of it? I mean, or do you think it's something else? It's not so much a matter of belief. It's a question of how much depth you want to go into uh, with some of this stuff. Uh, The vast majority of people are not interested in these subjects. They um, are not particularly interested in uh, anything more than the problems of life. And, you know, a lot of people have their hands full. and you know, for people like that, conventional religion is uh, usually the ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, now, certain very true ideas end up getting rather distorted uh, because, in a sense, they have to be kind of um, dumbed down. Uh, but you know, religion in its exoteric sense, you know, uh, serves a very real function. Let me tell, put it this way. Um, let's let's talk about uh, classical antiquity. Okay. There are all these myths running around. Uh, you know, all sorts of gods having affairs with each other, changing into animal. All sorts of weird, uh, you know, basically somewhat improbable stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, the vast majority of people accepted these stories as true, uh, and. They're very enjoyable, interesting stories, so why not? But every now and then, someone would, uh, who was a little bit more inquisitive would sort of say, you know, um, these kind of stories are weird. What, what are these things about? And then there were things called the mystery schools, and they, they would say, take them aside. And, okay, well, we'll tell you what they're really about. Mm-hmm. And that was you know, a process of initiation. And I think you could say the same thing about... Um, all major religions you know there's this kind of you know there's this kind of uh, narrative which may or may not be particularly rooted in any historical fact mm-hmm. um, and then there's the meaning behind the narrative you know in in Christianity for example as a matter of fact scholars are in great disagreement about who the historical Jesus was and what he actually said as opposed to what he would was imagined to have said later on Okay. There's no uh, there's no historical or archaeological e- evidence for the Exodus from Egypt. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, well, some people would argue the Bible would tell you about the Exodus from Egypt or or the Torah. But there's no like the archaeology doesn't doesn't fit in with that the period that that was supposed to have happened. Huh. Um, there was certainly no mass migration at that level. Right. Uh, there's no sign of that in the, you know, the Palestine or Canaan of the time. You know, and so, okay, well, this, most people think this is true, um, but no, I mean, and it's, it's uh, uh, shall we say, uh, an allegory of spiritual liberation. Mm. You know, it has, it, it, it is true, uh, even though 
a lot of the things didn't happen in a literal or factual sense. This was always known, uh, and uh, even some of the church fathers said, no, there are a lot of things, even in the Gospels, that never happened. Uh, they're uh, designed to represent certain mysteries. Mm -hmm. But this was lost in this, this, for the simple reason that um, people of spiritual depth are not really uh, very often into leadership. Mm. Uh, I mean, if you are, you know, what do you, what do you need to, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. Why, right. you know, why do I, you know, need to be the boss of something? So uh, there, there's not uh, a lot of motive for them to be, go out and run things. And there are people who just want to be the boss. Um, a lot of times these people aren't very spiritually advanced. But you can see how this, what happens in religious organizations because the people who are power mad or power uh, driven get to the top of the hierarchy uh, because it, it interests them. They want right. to be at the top. The people who actually know something, you know, really often, you know, might not want to be bothered and certainly not, you know, in that kind of competitive way. So you end up with a religion where the, the people who are running it really don't know a lot of the deep truths. Mm. And if this were true, it would explain an enormous amount of the history of Christianity in the last 2,000 years. Right. Uh, which obviously would be a huge subject. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that's kind of a theme in everything is this idea of, of uh, you know, when you talk about mystical rituals and everything, there's, there's an interesting part in the first chapter where you talk about um, crafting something. Mm -hmm. Where this whole, it's kind of an interesting idea where if you buy a knife, there's not really much kind of mystical power imbued in it. Mm -hmm. But if you create it, if you tan the leather, if you sharpen the blade, not necessarily forging it, that's, you, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, that's kind of a, that's a cool idea. Mm -hmm. The idea is actually fairly simple. Uh, the theory is that energy follows attention. This may not be energy of the sort that can be measured in a physicist's lab, but there is a type of energy that um, atten that attention on a thing can bring. Mm -hmm. uh, the most uh, obvious case of this is um, people talk about cooking with love, mm -hmm. right? There is some, something into that. There, when you cook something with love or someone cooks something with love, it, there's something different about it than it is from, you know, the, the usual fast food burger. There's something there, even though the ingredients may not be different. So there is a subtle energy that gets imbued, you know, by things like attention and love. So if you want to make a magical implement that's actually powerful, uh, the amount of work and effort and attention you put into it uh, empowers it. Uh, there was a, a French magician of the 19th century named Eliphaz Lévy who said, um, was talking about getting a magical wand, and the idea is you have to, it has to be almond, it has to, almond wood, uh, it, you know, you have to get, you know, cut it, you know, before dawn on, you know, the day of the spring equinox, you know, I mean, there are all sorts of elaborate things, and, and Lévy said, well, uh, you know, because this is so difficult, the fact that you went through all of this and did all of this uh, is an expression of your will, and therefore the wand that you got out of this is, is much more palpably um, an expression of your will than something that you went to the store and bought. Hmm. 
You know, I think there's something to that. I remember when I was in school, I, I was seeing a girl who was a musician, and she was describing her violin. And she said that people were very particular, especially with wood instruments. Her violin was 150 years old. And she said that someone else in the school had one that was 250 plus years old. And she said that they, they sound better. And I don't know if that, you know, you, is it the craftsmanship? Were they made better back then? Does age help out? Do, does the vibration of the same notes going through it kind of change the vibration? You know, do you want to get physical or metaphysical? Whatever it is, there was a more full sound, or at least she believed that, you know, and this kind of goes along with, with what you're saying. Have you ever heard anything like that before? I have, and I, I think there's some truth to it. I mean, just to put it a little bit more in perspective, uh, you know, the fact that it survived for 150 years mm. means that it was incredibly well-made to begin with. Right, yeah. They probably made lousy violins 150 years ago, but we're not going to see them because they've all fallen apart. So, Fair you know, point. You know point. <laughs> if the thing has lasted a couple of hundred years, it's, you know, someone did a really good job with it. Yeah. But um, I think there's something, uh, the vibration changes things, and that's a whole uh, uh, area of study and discussion in itself. Yeah. Um, so you wrote a book on Nostradamus as well, because mm -hmm. there's a chapter on Nostradamus mm -hmm. in the book. Um, now, uh, I, I'm, uh, what side of the fence do you fall on with Nostradamus? Are you pro, or, I mean, do you think he was had any kind of gifts, or was he... I mean, I know you mentioned in, in something else that we did mm -hmm. that he had the, the kind of the fun thing of making predictions that would happen after he died, mm -hmm. which always seemed kind of, um, I mean, it, when you tell me that, it seems kind of well too well thought out to not be coincidence, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Yes, I think so. Well, as I said, and I, I did write this book, it's titled uh, uh, The Essential Nostradamus, and it's a collection of his more interesting uh, uh, quatrains and uh, my translation and commentary on them. Uh, and I said in this book very specifically, personally, I would not base my expectation uh, of the future on anything Nostradamus predicted or is imagined to have predicted. Um, Nostradamus' uh, writing is oracular, and uh, oracular, coming from the word oracle, is language is uh, classically vague and ambiguous. Mm. So, uh, and Nostradamus is, is, is equally so. He, he made up a lot of words, kind of puns in different languages. He made up words? Yeah. They, in, in those days, people did make up words from like Latin and Greek much more than they do now. That's why we have so many Latin and Greek uh, words in, in, huh. uh, in English. But, um, you know, there are puns in, in, in different languages. There are kind of funny little anagrams. There are... Uh, um, all kinds of weird uh, things that he did. My view of Nostradamus is perhaps unusual in that um, I think he was a great surrealist poet. Hmm. You know, his verses are, are kind of broken. They're sort of jagged grammatically. You know, they, different images are kind of like juxtaposed even in the same line. And um, there's a real power and resonance to it. It, 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 it just sounds authoritative. Hmm. Um, in terms of what he actually specifically predicted or, you know, might have predicted, well, the record is not really particularly good, but not, the, the record is not really good for any prophecy uh, that I've ever known of. 
Um, sure, but he did predict um, uh, some uh, Henri's death. Was it King? Honey? Yeah, that's true. And that's yeah. how he kind of became right. into uh, right. Catherine of France, like in her inner circle, right? right? Exactly. Um, now, I guess you no. Know, it is true that that you know there aren't a lot of people who have a high level of accuracy. However, I mean, he's kind of elevated when people think of predictions, especially you know apocalyptic mm-hmm. the predictions. His name comes up. Mm-hmm. You know, um, why why do you think that is? I mean, why is he so? Because this was after World War II, it became popular in the United States, correct? I think I read that in your book somewhere. Um, yeah. why, why then? And why is he suddenly in the zeitgeist? Well, it's an interesting story, and it's kind of educational uh, to go into that, because uh, until the 30s, Nostradamus was virtually unknown outside the French-speaking world. 1930? Yeah. Okay, so 80 years ago. Right. And at this time, uh, which was the time when, when uh, there was such a thing as Nazi Germany, uh, Goebbels' wife, Goebbels, the propaganda minister, um, was interested in the occult. And she saw references to this in Nostradamus's prophecies of this figure called Hister, mm-hmm. which looks kind of a little bit like Hitler. So, uh, you know, she was convinced that Nostradamus had predicted the rise of Hitler. Now, uh, and many people still say that Hister is Hitler, uh, Hitler and the, what Hister really is, is, is uh, I'll get to. Um, but whether her husband believed her or not, he certainly saw the propaganda value of this. Mm. So he started using Nostradamus's prophecies to predict um, that uh, the Allies would lose World War II. And there were books published, they were like in neutral countries. I, I read one myself, it was published in, if I remember correctly, it was like published in Sweden in 1940, although it was in English. Um, you know, strongly implying who was going to win uh, World War II, and it wasn't hmm. the Allies. Hmm. Uh, so, based Nost- on Nostradamus's predictions, right? And the Nazis uh, found Nostradamus so useful. This is a, a, a weird story, but um, when they were invading France, if I remember correctly, they wanted to block the French army's retreat from Paris to the southeast for some tactical reason. So what they did is they printed up a whole bunch of fake Nostradamus prophecies that sounded like uh, uh, there was a German invasion uh, of Paris and it said something like, the Southeast shall be spared. And they dumped this on Paris. So all the roads to the Southeast uh, of Paris were clogged with refugees wow. fleeing. And the German general who you know, wrote about it in his memoirs later said, we had no idea this would work that well. Wow. So, um, what happened? Well, the Allies realized that Nostradamus had some propaganda value, so they started making uh, propaganda movies about Nostradamus. MGM made some in the the, the 40s, implying, of course, that the Allies would win. So, Nostradamus really became uh, known in the English-speaking world as uh, kind of as a side effect of the propaganda wars of uh, World War II. Like a mascot. Yeah. I mean, really? Now, I will, I just need to finish up the one thing, which is, who is this Hister thing? Um, Well, 
in my approach to Nostra, you know, I, I, the simplest and most obvious explanation seems to me to be the best. You know, as a result, um, Hister, well, what is Hister? Well, Hister is an old, Ister is an old name for the Danube River, which is the principal river of Austria, which was probably the most powerful country in Europe in Nostradamus's time. So, very, very likely when Nostradamus is talking about history, he's talking about the Habsburg Empire of Austria. Now, why don't people know this or focus on this? Well, quite frankly, if someone, you told the average guy on the street, the average tabloid reader that Nostradamus's predictions about history were about the Habsburg Empire in you know, 1560, he would not be too interested. That's true. That's a fair assessment. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, there's, there's a certain amount of imaginative projection here. Yeah. It's kind of funny how these kind of weird coincidences make people popular mm -hmm. long after their death. And predictions are one of those things where, you know, much like the Bible, Revelation, mm -hmm. and others, you can kind of read into it. And at any time period, you can kind of say like, oh, that sounds like what's happening right this second, mm -hmm. you know, and That's kind right. of use it to generate. That's, right. That's interesting. Um, now, in the book, you talk about a friend of yours who mm -hmm. actually dr had a dream about lottery numbers. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right? Can you tell that story? That's, sure. a, that's a good story. Um, a friend of my father's, uh, he worked, actually worked as a blacksmith in a factory, uh, sort of in the days when the U.S. still had industry. Um, and uh, he had these, uh, he had this dream in which these, this row of numbers popped into his head. And, you know, he, I guess he wrote them down and was kind of very struck by them. And he thought, well, maybe, gee, maybe I should buy a lottery ticket, uh, you know, with these numbers. Uh, and he didn't because he thought, well, this is just nonsense, but those were the winning lottery numbers that week. You know, that's a, he probably kicked himself for that one. I imagine. You know, I had a similar thing happen to me. I, I, was, I was in class in high school, and we made, I was in French class, we made a bouche de Noël, which is a type of cake, mm -hmm. and mine turned out terribly, we all, and everyone had to take pictures of them. And so uh, we had Polaroids back then. This is, I guess I'm dating myself, Polaroids, I took a picture of it. And when it, when it developed, inside of the, the cake, like uh, clearly written, it said lottery. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was very bizarre. And I don't know if it was a reflection. I mean, I tried to figure it out. But after I took it, I showed my mom. And just as a, you know, kind of a goof, we went and bought a lottery ticket. It wasn't for much. But the lottery ticket won. I think I won like 100 bucks or something. Oh, that's like, it's just kind of a weird thing. I mean, I think I still have the picture, but... Um, Interesting. Yeah, it doesn't make it... I mean, it's not like it changed my life or... Right. But, I mean, I remember it, you right. know, distinctly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's... It, we, I think we come at... We get these kind of things that come to us, and we come to a crossroads where we either listen or we don't. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, you know, it's, you know, life's almost like a choose-your-own-adventure book where, like, mm -hmm. you can, you know, had your father's friend chosen those, I mean, his life could have been very different. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what kind of, it was Powerball back then, but then, you know, that could have been, you know, This was in Connecticut, of, I, don't, I don't know what the lottery was. <laughs> I have no idea. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, well, it's interesting. I mean, one does have these messages. I, um, I mean, to uh, tell a somewhat relevant story, um, this was about 10 years ago now, um, I was a little bored with what I was doing, and I thought, you know, I wasn't really making very much money at it, so I thought um, I would get a job and, and start a practice as a financial advisor. Hmm. 
which I did uh, with American Express, and this is kind of a micro career because um, there was kind of a cutoff. I mean, I wasn't making the sales in any case. It was, you know, and, and there was a point at which, uh, you know, I heard this voice in my head that said, you know, this has all been fine up to now, but it's time to go. Uh-huh. And curiously enough, an editor friend of mine called me up uh, right about that time and said, hey, how would you like to do a book on Nostradamus? Hmm. Which is when I started the book on Nostradamus. And I, I left the job, which you know wasn't paying very well anyway, and I, I stayed there. But it was, you know, there was, uh, it was, a, you know, a little bit of a hint to, you know, which direction your life should take. Yeah. Well, in so the, you, in the chapter on prophecy that you have, there's a couple of different things you kind of go over. Um, now, you kind of talk about how modern physics kind of changes. It adds a scientific explanation for this type of thing. Like we're, you know, this space-time bend, you mm-hmm. know, can we, can, can the future kind of bend in on itself and can you see the future? You know, did, talk about that a little bit. Well, I don't understand physics terribly well. I mean, I have kind of a, you know, the usual somewhat crude layman's knowledge of the whole thing. Um, There are things in contemporary science uh, like, you know, the idea of non-locality, you know, to um, uh, atoms, if if two particles are split, you know, they'll behave in the same way, they'll spin the same way even if they're separated and all this kind of thing. this is sometimes taken to be as kind of proof of some kind of spiritual ideas or teaching. Um, I would be a little more cautious myself in that um, the, uh, I think it's probably better just sort of say, well, these are kind of useful metaphors to help us you know, think about this. This quantum physics doesn't prove spirituality to, to my knowledge. So I think there's a difference. There's, uh, you know, you can think by analogy, and you can, um, you know, it, it, they can take you quite far. It's j- uh, just, um, it's good not to be too literalistic about it. If only because science is going to change its mind. You know, it has its, you know, has a right to change its mind because new findings happen. And so, your supposed proof of spirituality 50 years from now may be just totally discarded. Yeah. Well, it would be. I mean, it would be. I mean, we can't bend space-time, unfortunately, without tremendous amounts of gravity. Mm-hmm. But it would be kind of a, a cool experiment to see if you could... Pr- I mean, that would be the ultimate, you know, proof that either the future is set or you can change it. If you mm-hmm. could bend it and see what the current trajectory is mm-hmm. and then alter your decisions, mm-hmm. and, you know, that would be kind of the ultimate thing. But you would need science included in that mm-hmm. kind of metaphysical mm-hmm. idea of prophecy and prediction, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, there was this one story that I thought was kind of interesting that you said um, that in up until 1000 AD, mm-hmm. a lot of people when they would make deals, they would they would have this kind of subclause that said this is only valid until the return of Christ. Mm-hmm. Basically, am I saying that mm-hmm. correctly? Mm-hmm. So, can you explain that a little bit? And it's a kind of a cool thing. Well, this this was just before 1000 AD, which. Um, Caused an enormous sensation in Europe because there there were talks about you know various references to a thousand years and I think in um, Revelation in particular. So uh, many people took this to mean that uh, Christ would return in one thousand A.D. 
I mean, it all seems so natural and clear cut. So they would write these things in, you know, the, their deeds and say, you know, uh, you know, this this uh, this deal is valid until like the Lord's return. I don't know why you'd need to put that in because I, I would assume that if the last judgment <laughs> comes, no one's going to be too worried about property deeds anyway. But <laughs> apparently they did. That's a good point. Why a thousand? Just because it's a nice round number? Or well, it, yeah, it's a nice round number. And as I said in Revelation, I think there's some reference to a thousand year uh, period uh, when before. Christ would return, so people, what what that really meant uh, in terms of what Revelation is, of course, another story. It's as a you know subject to deal with, but um, people took that to mean that Christ would come back in a thousand A.D. Yeah, um, I think in, in something else we were talking about, you were you were we were talking about twenty twelve, mm -hmm. and kind of does anyone you know it's already passed and mm -hmm. gone. I mean, I think you know, in the modern world, you have to kind of give it a sexy title and name. So it's 2012 and you have a specific date, mm -hmm. you know, but I think the, the general idea is that it's a transition period. Mm -hmm. You can't really sell a transition period to people, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, and in the book, you kind of talk about the age of Pisces transitioning mm -hmm. into the age of Aquarius. Mm -hmm. um, I guess kind of a, I don't, you know, can you explain that a little bit? Sure, sure. Well, there are, without going into uh, great details about astrology or astronomy, there are there's a great year, what's called, it's somewhat less than, around 26,000 years, it varies, I think. Uh, um, and uh, this is a cycle of the procession of the equinoxes. Mm -hmm. And the spring equinox rises with a different constellation in the background. I'm sorry, the, 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 the uh, sun rises on, Mar on March 21st, or the solar, um, or the vernal equinox with a particular constellation in the background. And for approximately 2,500 years, it has one uh, constellation in the background, which was Pisces. And uh, now uh, it is Aquarius. And these are thought to herald different ages of, of humanity. Now, most people, when they hear about the age of Aquarius, uh, you know, uh, or at least most people of a certain age uh, hear about Aquarius, uh, you know, they think of the song from Hare right, back yeah. in 1967. <laughs> yeah. And it all has kind of like a kind of uh, charmingly antiquated hippie uh, flavor to it. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, I, I would say that's not because the uh, idea of the age of Aquarius is, you know, went out of date, it's that enormous numbers of um, uh, current phenomena are uh, very much Aquarian phenomena. And these are things we now take for granted, the incredible rise in technology. Quirky individualism, you know, which was certainly true of the hippie counterculture, but it's kind of true of everyone now, or at least everyone likes to think they're quirky individualists, even though they may be or maybe quirky individualists in exactly the same way, but um, there's also a, an interest in personal spiritual experience rather than religion. Okay. Um, Pisces is associated with religion, and mm. the great world religions uh, either arose during that period, starting around with 500 BC, or couple that existed before, like Judaism and Hinduism, certainly became very different at that point or after that point. So, and we see the, the world religions, um, you know, they're no longer kind of at the vanguard of human uh, thought or experience. They're still around. Uh, 
uh, they're not going to vanish tomorrow, but they're not quite as relevant as they uh, were or seem to be. And, you know, they're, they're not taken maybe quite as seriously, at least in the Western world. So, so um, uh, I mean, another little detail, I, I would suggest that maybe the, the real transition point, that this, this varies enormously. There's no exact date for the age of Aquarius for the simple reason that there's no dotted line in the sky saying when you know, one constellation mm. begins and another ends. But, um, you know, there's a, um, uh, to put it briefly, uh, World War I became World War I partly because the British got involved, which they usually didn't in European land wars. And they did because the Germans were starting to build a navy that was going to be as big as the British Navy. And that they would not have. So you could say, in a sense, that World War I started, you know, as a war over sea power. Okay. And Pisces is a water sign. Mm -hmm. uh, it ended with the triumph of air power. I mean, the most obvious is, you know, the dropping of the atomic bombs in, mm -hmm. uh, on Japan. Aquarius is an air sign. Hmm. So now, you know, uh, in, just viewed in military terms, there was an age of sea power when that was evident, and now uh, air power is, uh, you know, militarily uh, certainly very close to the most important thing. Well, I mean... In so that just suggests to me that, that that might mark a transition in those ages. Yeah. Well, I mean, because it's... And that also might be a very American way of viewing it, mm -hmm. because... As far as America goes, mm -hmm. we're a very different country from 1945 on than mm -hmm. we were before 1945. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether that transition is is real or not, it's definitely real for us. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's a it's a kind of an interesting argument. Um, the other kind of th cool thing about it is there's a quantity versus quality argument that mm -hmm. you have, and I think you the the example is um, the BP oil spill, mm -hmm. where you know, the, the company is more concerned about the quantity of money that they lose. Mm -hmm. So their, their desire to fix it is based on money, whereas instead of the idea of quality, of the quality of the water supply that's there. And you kind of tied that into the mm -hmm. different ages. Is it, um, yeah, well, yeah, there are a couple of ideas there. I mean, one in the BP. Apparently, BP was rather, in the 2010 oil spill, BP was rather um, slow to get around to doing anything until uh, they realized it was going to affect their quarterly earnings report. Right. And then somehow the idea that all of these fish were dying, all of these people's livelihoods were being ruined, just didn't matter too much. But, you know, the third quarter report, uh, that's a different story. Which uh, leads us to what uh, a French uh, esoteric philosopher named René Guénon called the reign of quantity. Mm. And his view, uh, which is very elaborate and which I, I wouldn't have time to explain here, was that quality, you know, in kind of its pure sense, uh, is uh, less and less interest. It's totally about quantity. Uh, it's totally about how much of this. Um, more is better, I suppose, is the, uh, the general uh, rule. Uh, everything is viewed in kind of dollar terms. And um, 
you know, the idea that there's something else that, that going back to what I was saying earlier about craft, you know, that, that there that some there's some value in, you know, attention placed in something, kind of quality. Yeah. Uh, it's just not it's not recognized. I mean it's just considered to be like a child's tale. Yeah. Um uh, let, let's so let's talk about something else for a second. Mm-hmm. This is this was interesting to me. Is the the Masons? Mm-hmm. Um, you have a whole chapter on Masons. Mm-hmm. Now, well, I've always been fascinated with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I would love to think that there's some that there's some cryptic society that has all these weird rituals, just because mm-hmm. that's the kind of stuff I'm into. Mm-hmm. But uh, and I think part of that was driven by when I was a kid for Christmas, I went to a Masonic lodge, mm-hmm. and they had. I mean, it was because it was like Christmas time. A lot of Masonic lodges do this, where they have you know activities for the community around Christmas. And I remember looking at there were like weird thrones in there, and mm-hmm. the place was kind of weird. And like as a kid, I've always been drawn to those types of things, so it stuck out in my head. Um, but you kind of talk about. Uh, um, their history a little bit, mm-hmm. yeah, and in this and other books. Mm-hmm. So, could you, can you kind of briefly talk about you know mm-hmm. alleged histories or what you think is probably true? There are a lot of um, theories about it, but probably the most plausible and best documented is that there certainly were guilds and uh, of different crafts and different professions. Um, and these were, in a sense, kind of um, receptacles of esoteric knowledge and wisdom. In um, France, there are these uh, guilds that still exist today called the Compagnonage. You know, and it's not really translatable because there's no real English equivalent, but they are like trade guilds with kind of a certain sacred function, a sacred aspect to it. I assume most of those are pretty, you know, vestigial, but, you know, at least that was the original idea. Uh, The Masons uh, were obviously a guild like this, and they had, um, as far as we can tell, they they seem to have started with uh, Masonic, uh, with medieval uh, stonemakers, stone carvers guilds, and for reasons that are still not entirely clear, around the turn of the 17th century, they, they, more and more Masonic lodges became, um, the term is speculative, that is to say, as opposed to operative. Operative masonry means you know, you're really out there cutting a piece of stone. Speculative is the ideas behind this, and a lot of esoteric ideas were kind of embodied in the ideas of um, you know, the, 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 what is it called, the jewels, the, the various symbols and, and whatnot. I'm not a Mason myself, so my understanding of it is secondhand, I suppose, because I'm not a Mason, I can talk more freely about it, so it's, it's sure. uh, one way or another. But anyway, um, so these stonemasons' guilds began to um, uh, have kind of more of a esoteric, magical, or maybe not magical, but esoteric component, and they started to attract gentlemen you know, and a gentleman in those days was someone who didn't have to work. Mm, okay. Not a very polite person. No. I, I think they were supposed to be polite, although I don't always think they were. Right. But, they, you know, a gentleman in those days was someone who didn't have to work. Uh, so, uh, and the idea was that they became interested in, in these stonemasons guilds because of these you know, ideas that were in them. Some of them uh, inspired by the Kabbalah, some of them inspired by... Um, 
a movement known as Rosicrucianism, uh, which arose in the 17th, early 17th century Germany. And the other thing about the Masonic lodges was that they were open to anyone who admitted to belief in a supreme being, not a matter of your religion. So there's one very early uh, record of a Masonic meeting in England during the English Civil War, you know, in the 1640s, where, you know, this uh, this uh, supporter of the king, uh, this, the Puritan supporter of the Parliament, this Catholic are all, you know, they're listed as lodge members. They were all able to get together and have a meal, you know, in a civilized way, while you know their various factions were like butchering each other, and that was very important. It was, uh, you know, it was the beginning of religious tolerance in any real sense. And the Masons were, particularly in the 18th century, very, very instrumental in uh, bringing about things like religious tolerance, um, representative government. Um, and were also involved in kind of the, the very, very earliest uh, aspects of uh, the scientific revolution. So masonry was very, very seminal uh, to the world as we know it. Now, the typical Mason's Lodge, you know, on Main Street, USA, probably doesn't have too much, you know, element of that. It's probably a social club. The rituals are sort of done without you know, maybe a great deal of understanding or interest in them, but, um, or just kind of a means of a fraternal bond. But there was something there, and um, in corner, certain corners of masonry, uh, there probably still are. Um, you know, I mean, I, I do know some people who are masons, men who are masons, who are interested in that aspect of it. But I wouldn't, you know, there are a couple of million masons, so probably in this, even, not too many even of them. So they, um, from what I what I got, they were, at the time that they were kind of forming and on their upswing, they were very much for democracy and for science, mm -hmm. which put them at odds with the Catholic Church. Yep. So what what kind of conflict did that create, like historically or sociologically? I'll tell you, this is a this is a funny story. Uh, I don't know if it's the case, but I, I, I can tell you it's it's at least said in Masonic circles, because a Mason friend told me that, that the reason the Catholic Church broke with Masons, because up until the 18th century, there was no conflict between Catholicism and Masonry. Hmm. Um, you could be a Catholic and be a Mason, there was no rule against it. The, earliest Masonic guilds, you know, had uh, people swear fidelity to the church. There was no rift. This friend of mine told me a story which is instructive and plausible, which is that this all came about and when one of the popes wanted to be initiated as a Mason, and they were entirely willing to do this, but they would not honor his papal uh, status in the lodge. In mm. the lodge, you were a brother like everybody else. You were not His Majesty the Pope. He wouldn't stand for this, and that um, was the beginning of the rift. Mm. It's an interesting story. It, it, I, 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 I've never seen it documented as purely an oral story, uh, and it has a certain ring of truth in it to me. So I just sure. throw it out there for your amusement. Yeah, no, that's. A, I mean, that's. A, I mean, that would make sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, because the the papacy has always had kind of. You know, they're the leader of mm -hmm. what they believe to be the one true religion, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like I guess all of them are. Mm -hmm. um, 
Now let's talk about, um, you have a whole um, section about demons. Mm-hmm. In your, so you talked about how you fought off a demon or an evil entity or something like that. Yeah, or at least it felt like it. Um, this would have been, I don't know, say it was 1985. I was kind of maybe in my late 20s. Um, uh, I was in my bed. I was alone in my apartment. I, you know, I was having a, as far as I could remember, a perfectly ordinary dream. And you know, in the middle of this dream, it felt like I was sort of something like literally collided into me. And um, it was, uh, I felt myself kind of jerked back into my body very quickly. And I was, you know, I was suddenly awake and I was kind of frightened. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, all I could assume was that while I was asleep, you know, something tried to get into my body and you know, it's probably not very much like a, you know, a germ or a virus or something. You have your own natural defenses and assuming you're, you're reasonably healthy, you know, you, your body has a mechanism to fight it off. So I wasn't possessed in any sort of way. Um, that It felt like fighting off a demon attack. Um, you know, I have one or two other experiences that, that seem something like that. Um, uh, you know, where you have some kind of sense of some kind of teasing or annoying spirit in the room. They're, the good news is that they're easier to get rid of than mosquitoes. You have, to, you have to, you know, the mosquito, you have to get up and turn on the light and find the mosquito and right. kill the mosquito. It's a real drag. Right. Whereas a demon, you can, you can just basically tell them to get lost. I mean, is it that easy? I mean, there's a whole exorcism division in the Catholic Church, whether they want to admit it or not. And it's, you know... I don't know that it's exactly like The Exorcist, the movie, but it seems a little more difficult. Well, let's say this. It, uh, if something gets in, uh, that might start causing problems. But, you know, I'm talking about, a, you know, a, a person with reasonably normal defenses on the you know, psychic as well as physical uh, areas so that... Um, you know, you can fight it off. You, it's 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 fairly easy to keep them from getting in, but you know, most of the people who have uh, reportedly had demonic possessions are, are kind of weakened somehow psychically, whether it's through abuse or something like that. So, arguably, their um, uh, resistance goes down, and something got in, just the way. You know, if you're fatigued and stressed, you know, you maybe have a better chance of coming down with a cold. Hmm. Um, could you talk about one section where someone that you were dealing with had this happen, where they felt that they were taken over by a demon, and there's a spiritual crisis line? Does that really exist? I don't think it exists anymore. Uh, this is when I was editor of Gnosis magazine, and this was a call from a woman in Australia. She had a German accent, but you know, she said she was calling from Australia, and she wanted some help because she was being attacked by a vicious demon that, according to her, was called Yahweh. And why did she call you again? Because I was editor of Gnosis Magazine. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's the only she reason. She called the magazine. Oh, really? She couldn't think of anybody else to call. Okay. And, you know, I, well, I, you know, and this is a... Uh, um, I mean, I sort of told her a couple of things more or less along the lines of what I just told you, but uh, I was having some serious problems, and I, you know, I wasn't entirely sure that <clears throat> she, uh, uh, this was going to be enough. At the time, in Santa Cruz, there was a, uh, 
spiritual emergency network complete with a hotline, you know, people who are having, you know, spiritual crisis, whether it was something like this or what people sometimes describe as a kundalini awakening, all sorts of things. Um, the DSM, you know, the, the psychiatric diagnostic manual that came out in 1995 or so uh, was the first one to listen, list spiritual crisis as, you know, something diagnosable and to, mm. that, that needed to be taken seriously uh, by the psychiatric profession and not, not just, you know, filed under schizophrenia. This, this hotline was attempted to deal with that. I, I don't think it exists anymore, but it was called the Spiritual Emergency Network. And uh, um, if anyone's interested, they can uh, maybe look for it on the internet and see what, see what comes up. That's interesting. Um, now, speaking of possessions, and this is maybe going back just a couple of steps, mm -hmm. but I, I've written this down because in the book you talk about Adolf Hitler being possessed. Mm -hmm. By a creature, was it wonton? Wotan. Wotan. Um, I've never heard that before. Can you talk a little? Can you even talk about how the hair and the mustache are all part of the, the whole thing? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's um, well. This idea is not mine uh, originally, but uh, one of the first manifestations of it was in a uh, 1936 article by the. Uh, psychologist C.G. Jung, which was entitled Wotan, Wotan. Wotan was kind of this, one of the chief gods of the Norse pantheon, the Germanic pantheon. And uh, Jung said, I think we have to consider very seriously that, uh, you know, what's going on in the German nation now is, is a real, uh, you know, kind of a resurrection of this very ancient archetype. Um, you know, and he made it sound fairly spontaneous, but there is also some evidence that, you know, Hitler uh, consciously wanted to invoke Wotan and wrote poems to him and that kind of thing. And uh, there may have been, if I remember correctly, you know, some kind of, someone did some kind of portrait of Wotan uh, in uh, the late 19th century that had him with kind of a toothbrush mustache and that forelock that Hitler is known for. And, it's sometimes said that um, Hitler adopted that kind of style, uh, kind of conscious imitation of that painting. Hmm. I mean, well, the not he and the Nazis were obsessed with the occult. Mm -hmm. I mean, was it because of this, or was it were there other occult things that they were obsessed with? Um, there were, uh, you know, there were. You could say uh, there were kind of dark lodges. Uh, there, you know, lines of sinister uh, occult practices that um, you know they either were in touch with or very much wanted to be in touch with uh, you know the idea uh, is that a an occult lodge that's good you know uh, at, the, at the very very least respects people's free will and will not do anything unethical you know, and behaves higher ethical standards uh, than uh, typical humanity as a you know uh, a black lodge is all about control and you know more than one person has pointed out well this is all about control and manipulation of people's minds hey isn't that what advertising is trying to do mm. so people have sometimes said you know advertising without uh, uh, not without reason that advertising itself is kind of a form of black magic it is it's amazing what people can get you to do I mean even you know, and it's all tailored. I mean, there's 
advertisements that I saw as a kid that are, you know, songs that you kind of chant, you know, McDonald's songs, mm -hmm. fast food's a big one, that are still stuck in your head, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, Black Magic, I mean, yeah. Here, here's a, a, here's a, a uh, new one that I just came across on the internet a couple of days ago. I think it's a German advertising, <laughs> curiously, <laughs> German <laughs> advertising agency that came up with this thing that um, will make some little jingle like that vibrate on uh, glass. So that if you like, if you and your train, if you're like falling asleep and in a train and your head hits the window, you will hear this little thing in your head from this process of vibration. They'll vibrate the glass at that frequency where you'll hear something in your head. That's crazy. So you know, and and no, like, I mean, I mean, you know, these these, these black magicians from like you know the year fifteen hundred are like you know invoking demons and all kind of, that kind of thing. I mean, you know, they're pretty much small fry compared to that kind of thing. I mean, that's like mind control. I mean, that's like the you know the mind control yep. experiments that people talk about the CIA doing in the fifties mm -hmm. and sixties. Thoughts appearing in your head. I have heard it said, and uh, I'm willing to at least entertain the idea that. Um, there is an enormous amount of skepticism about the paranormal, parapsychology, all this stuff. Um, it's amounts. It, it's uh, amounts to just a kind of blindness. I have heard it said that this is not accidental. That there are certain, actually, even beneficent uh, occult groups who have. Uh, you know, try to block people's experience of the paranormal because you know what uh, what would be done with it. Mm. I mean, what would a, an advertising agency do with some of this stuff? Uh, I mean, I have a book here on, on thought transference. Uh, you know, what what if uh, you know people actually took thought transference like seriously and tried to uh, do something with it? Mm. Um, I have a Russian friend who said he once met someone who had been trained as a psychic killer by the KGB. Can you really kill someone by psychic means? I don't know. I, I'm sure that the KGB looked into it. I think that's that, yeah. that is extremely that itself is extremely plausible. Yeah, I mean we had well we had a, we had our yeah. we had our programs too. I mm -hmm. mean. Um, yeah, well, that's a, an interesting place to leave it. We're okay. we're out of time, but sure. um, yeah, that's uh, something to think about. So, are you working on any new books? How can people reach you? Like, what's uh, well, my website know? is richardsmoley.com or innerchristianity.com. So uh, you can kind of contact me through my website. I've got a couple of book ideas, but they're pretty embryonic now. So I'm not and this one just came out. This one just came out in February. Yeah. So. You always got to do the. You got to pitch the next thing. Yeah, you can't. Right. What are you going to sit on that for? You just came out three months ago. You don't right. have another book out already. <laughs> right. Uh, do you have social media? Do you do that? Do you do Facebook, Twitter, any of those types uh, of things? I don't actually have a Facebook page. I, I did sign up for Twitter, but never figured out how to use it. <laughs> it's just type I, sentences, one sentence, and send it and, off. Um, I'm. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm just not. I'm not as wired as many people are. I'm one of the last people I think to still have a dumb phone. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. So RichardSmoley.com. S M O L E Y. Right. Um, wonderful. All right. Well, Richard, thank you for uh, sitting with me, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Good night. <laughs>